0: Uh, It's been a few years, but I remember some years back I shared with you about a friend of mine, a Presbyterian pastor named George Moore. During my first year in Omaha, I got to meet George through a mutual friend, and I learned that he was in a prayer group, a handful of pastors from various denominations, uh, and I was really interested in joining something like that and maybe being in that prayer group. So I... uh, Invited George to have lunch with me, kind of introduced myself, and uh, we, we sat down in a booth at Spazia, uh, and, and we got to visiting, and George told me he was a five-time cancer survivor. I thought, Wow. And, but the big thing I noticed about him, that he had, this, he had this depth of spirit to him, and he had this sort of undercurrent of joy that just pervaded everything about him. And, and, and those things really drew me in. And I thought, I, this is the kind of guy I want to hang around with him. And so after a while in the, in the lunch, I finally blurted out, can I join your prayer group? <laughs> and he, he chuckled at my, you know, how brash I was. And he said, well, he talked to the other pastors in the group and let me know. And apparently George must have given me a good recommendation. Well, so every month we got together and we listened to each other and we we prayed for each other. We prayed over each other, and and even though there was no office and there's no designated leader, really George was our our spiritual leader. Uh, everybody contributed. We all cared for each other, but George had this way of setting the tone. He he was so humble. Sometimes he could be shockingly transparent. Like you go. Did he just say that? He gave us the courage to let down our guard, to be ourselves. A few years later, George was uh, diagnosed with cancer a sixth time. And I remember I went to the hospital to visit him. Uh, It was, I think it was a Saturday evening. And, you know, I thought, you know, I want to be there for George. I, I wanted to show my concern for him and my love for him and to pray over him. Uh, but when I got into the room with him and he greeted me and it, it was like his trust in Jesus and his joy in the spirit just overflowed from him. And, and so I remember I walked out of that hospital room and I was walking down the hall and I was so encouraged. <laughs> I, I, once more, I received way more than I gave. About a month later, George died. And each of us in the prayer group were asked, these were George's instructions, that we were asked to have a part in his memorial service. And I thought, what an honor. And I, I remember standing up, I can picture it in my mind, standing up there the the pulpit and before, before West Hills Presbyterian Church and reading a scripture that George had picked for me to read that day. Once again, George gave me more than I could ever give him. You know, as we head, in, head into Thanksgiving, I, I thought it would be a good time to reflect on our friendships. And over the past year, who would you say has been an important or unexpected friend to you? So here's what we're going to do I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to huddle up into groups of three or four and. Uh, Uh, introduce yourselves, maybe talk to people in front of you or behind you or however it works, and answer this question. Who's been an important or unexpected friend to you over the last year? Now, if you get in the huddle and you don't want to say anything or you don't have anything to say or you just prefer not to, that is absolutely fine. Feel free to just listen. And especially notice this. If you look around and see if there's anybody behind you or in front of you or beside you that is kind of alone. And, and, you know, go over there, or maybe, maybe take a friend with you and, and say, hey, do you want to be in a group with us? And if they don't, that's fine too, but at least, but at least offer. Um, so uh, try to get into groups of three or four. You only have a couple of minutes, so start now. All right. You know, one of the things that I like about hearing all of you relate and you, you kind of get into it so well is that I see, well, Friendships starting to happen, or maybe friendships that are building, or uh, maybe new people you're meeting. And, and you know, though, being a relational church, that's also one of our values, is being relational with one another. Uh, today we're going to look at two aspects of befriending someone, especially someone who may need you more than you need them, at least at the time, like, like the way George was with me. So here it is, empty yourself, elevate them. And today we're going to see what that means. What does that look like? What's that about? So for now, will you say it with me? Empty yourself, elevate them. On on Friday, my ESPN app said that Michigan State was picked to beat Nebraska by a point and a half. Where do they come up with a half point? Does anybody know? The Huskers were the underdog, and we all love underdogs. There's something about rooting for an underdog and seeing them come back from behind. It just makes us want to cheer and root for them. It's like the shepherd boy David who defeated the mighty Goliath. You know, I think God must love underdogs because the Bible's full of them. And when it comes to friendships... We could say that an underdog is somebody who needs more support and encouragement from you than they're able to give back, at least at the time. Um, And in my friendship with George, I was the underdog. I needed a friend, and George befriended me. And he always seemed to have a way of giving me a lot more than I could ever give to him. And if you belong to Jesus, then don't be surprised if God sets you up with someone uh, that, to be a friend to, who needs you more than you need them, at least at the time. That's an opportunity for you. Befriend somebody who's an underdog. Now, word to caution here: you cannot think of yourself as being above them. That's deadly to a friendship, right? We have to empty ourselves before we're prepared to elevate them. And never underestimate that person who appears to be an underdog because they may just have a whole lot to give. For example, do you know who some of the happiest people in the world are? It's not rich people. It's not beautiful people. It's not the super famous or super talented people. Some of the happiest people in the world have down syndrome nearly 99% of them say they are happy with their lives who else can say that huh they say they love their families and they like who they are now if you befriend someone with down syndrome you may feel yeah, well I've got, i got have to give a lot in this friendship and it may not always to you feel balanced but you'll soon discover that this person also has a lot to give. Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 1. And we're going to walk through these seven verses, verse by verse, uh, because they have a lot to say about how Jesus' people do friendships. Friendships. Uh, The Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this letter in the uh, mid-first century A.D. Uh, He was writing to his brothers and sisters in in Christ, living in the city of Philippi, which today is in northern Greece. And Paul is so thankful for these friends. They were the first ones to partner with him uh, by supporting him financially so that he could continue his church-planting mission in other places. And in in the previous chapter... Paul says how much joy these people bring to him. He tells them, okay, stand firm in the faith. And he tells them to stay unified in the spirit and to live lives worthy of the gospel. That's what happens in chapter 1. Chapter 2 starts with one long sentence, and verse 4 has four ifs. Did you see that? Let's look. Therefore, if You have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now, another way to translate this is to turn those ifs into questions. So, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to turn, I'm going to. Turn those ifs into questions and and ask them to you. And if you respond yes, then I encourage you to just speak it out good and strong and loud. Okay? Has being united with Christ brought you encouragement? Have you received comfort from his love? Does the same Holy Spirit dwell in all of you? Have you experienced God's tenderness and compassion? And it's because of those yeses in verse 2, he tells them what will bring his happiness over the top. He says, Then make my joy complete. How? By being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And when he tells them to be like minded and of one mind, he's not saying that you agree on every little thing, any rational belief and argument and doctrine. He, he, this, this is more than that. It's also about your feeling and your attitude and, and bringing all that together. It's about the state of your heart and your mind. Now let's go to verse 3. Here he tells them what not to do. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or vain conceit. And the Greek word translated vain conceit could literally, literally be translated empty glory. Uh, The Greek word is kenodoxia, empty glory. What's empty glory? It's turning all the attention on yourself. Empty glory is bragging to make yourself look good. Empty glory is, it's a really bad way to be a friend, right? And the rest of verse 3 gives us the flip side. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Instead of operating out of empty glory and seeking empty glory, try Elevating someone. Uh, Elevate that person. Lift them up. Now, I want you to know, I'm not trying to say to put yourself down. Okay? I'm not trying to say, you know, think less of yourself. I think God wants you to have a healthy self-esteem. And I I also believe that a God-given healthy self-esteem is what enables you to forget about yourself for a little bit. And think about someone else and focusing on lifting them up. And that's what it says in verse 4. And let's, say, let's all say verse 4 together, shall we? Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Instead of elevating yourself, put that aside. Take a moment to elevate them. Let, let me tell you about Doris. Doris has gone to be with the Lord now. I was honored to be her pastor for a while. She was the church organist at that church for decades. But something bigger than that, Doris was a person who had been through some really painful, heartbreaking things in her life, but that isn't where she lived. Doris would seemingly wake up every morning thinking about all the people she was going to spread love to that day. Who was she going to go cheer up? Who is she going to go bring a little treat to or bring a little food to? Who is she going to go help out around the house with? Who is she going to go and pray with? And you know who those people were? Usually they were an underdog. People who were less noticed by others. Someone who may be usually forgotten. But they were not forgotten by Doris. So what Paul is saying to all his friends in Philippi is imagine what it would be like to be in a church where everybody acted like Doris <laughs> where they, you know instead of uh, you know looking to your own interests all the time focusing on the interests of the other person Can you imagine Imagine can you imagine a church where where people don't really get bent out of shape, shape when they don't get their way Can you imagine a church where nobody dominates the conversation seeking empty glory can you imagine a church where people freely elevate each other? I don't know if that kind of church exists, but if, it, if it, but if it did, I'd want to go to it. Of course, I'd probably ruin it, but I want Faith Westwood to be that kind of church. And you know, to a degree, we already are. Jesus is already at work in us. And I think that's, that's the way all churches are, right? All churches are already partway there. He's leading us, and, and we're, not, we're not finished, we're not completely there, but we are partway there. Verse 5 tells us this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is God's word for us today, folks. Look at that again, verse 5. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, what is that? What's the mindset of Christ Jesus? That's in the next two verses. Verse 6 says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Before Christ was born on the earth, before he was given the name Jesus, the Bible says he was the divine son equal and one with the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. We call this doctrine the Trinity, the three-in-one God. Jesus could have stayed in heaven clinging to his divine privileges, but he didn't. Verse 7 says, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Though equal with God, he made himself nothing, it says. Some versions translate it, he emptied himself. Think of that. What did Jesus experience when he emptied himself and took on our humanity? He got hungry, he got tired he had to sleep just like us why did Jesus empty himself because we needed him we needed what only he could give us he came to be a friend of underdogs and sinners and and we're supposed to be that kind of friend to each other so here is I think the mindset of Christ empty yourself elevate them Let's say it together one more time, shall we? Empty yourself, elevate them. Of course, we have to empty more of ourselves than Jesus did. We have to empty our pride. We have to empty our pretentiousness. We have to empty our prejudice. We have to empty our inflated sense of self-importance. Basically, empty yourself means to learn to be humble. It means... Making this friendship, making it as equal as possible and, and putting the needs of the other person ahead of your own, it looks like George and the way he befriended me. It looks like Doris and the way she befriended so many in her town. And there have been times when God has helped me to be that kind of friend for someone else. When, when I was a, a small-town pastor in my early 30s, just a couple years ago, um, I, I learned about a few uh, guys who liked to hang out late Wednesday evenings and play bluegrass and old-time music. And they, they'd get together in the garage of a young carpenter, and I'll, I'll call him Rick. I didn't know Rick before this. Uh, but I found a way to invite myself over. I kind of have a habit of doing that, don't I? <laughs> anyway, I remember that first night I, I walked in in my guitar, in my case, into that garage, and I noticed how it was kind of dim in there. And uh, you know, it was cluttered with junk, and it was kind of dirty. And there was a pot belly stove over in the corner that seemed out to give out as much smoke as warmth. In other words, it was perfect. <laughs> Rick loved to play the fiddle. And a couple other guys showed up with their stringed instruments. And and I didn't know most of the songs. I mean I was kinda a little bit new to this genre of music, but I was kind of interested in, in trying it out. And but I also learned that there weren't that many chords. And so I could just kind of fake it and play along. It was, it was okay. I did the best I could. The thing that I tried not to be while I was there was the pastor. That identity, that status, if you will, I had to leave at the door. I was not there to frown at their F-bombs or to keep track of how much they were drinking. I was just another guy who showed up, who liked to play music. About a year later, uh, Rick's wife filed for divorce, and there was a time a few months later when we didn't get together on Wednesday nights. But I knew where to find Rick, and so I, I checked on, checked in on him, not as a pastor but as a friend. Eventually, the guy started uh, playing again in the basement of his parents' house. And I remember one night, I sang a song for him and his new girlfriend uh, that I had written uh, about my wife, Trish. And his girlfriend said that that song gave her hope for her life. A few weeks later, on Easter Sunday, I was surprised when Rick and his girlfriend showed up at my church and I think it really wasn't so much um, an expression of faith as it was more a a gesture of friendship you know in in friendships there's, there's no script there's no formula I'm just trying to be the the kind of friend to them that Jesus is to me. Does that make sense? I think that's what this passage is talking about. Be the kind of friend to each other that Jesus is to you. I I had to empty myself uh, uh, of any kind of personally conceived status, uh, empty myself of being the moral police, empty myself of being an expert about anything. Did I elevate him? Did I lift him up? I don't know, but I think so because I believe that every time you befriend someone, if you're a a true friend, you lift them up, and when Christ is in you, when Christ is the Lord of your life and and His Spirit is at work in you, then when you treat them with the love and the dignity that that, that Jesus shows you, they're going to be lifted up. Empty yourself, elevate them. And I promise if you do that, you will be a friend who will never be forgotten. Isn't that right? If you empty yourself and elevate them, you will be a friend who will never be forgotten.